Well, turn with me now, friends, in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 16. I'll be reading the majority of Leviticus chapter 16, verses 1 through 28, nearly the whole chapter. Leviticus 16, 1 through 28, this passage will provide us with a little bit of context to understand what we're doing in our sermon passage, which is Hebrews 13. So in a moment, we'll turn over to Hebrews chapter 13, but before we get there, Leviticus chapter 16, verses 1 through 28. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron your brother not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil before the whole mercy seat which is on the ark, lest he die. For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. Thus Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering, and of a ram as a burnt offering. He shall put the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body. He shall be girded with a linen sash, and with the linen turban he shall be attired. These are holy garments. Therefore he shall wash his body in water and put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats as a sin offering, and one ram as a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and to let it go as the scapegoat into the wilderness. And Aaron shall bring the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bull as the sin offering, which is for himself. Then he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, with his hands full of sweet incense beaten fine, and bring it inside the veil." And he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony, lest he die. He shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. Before the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, Bring its blood inside the veil and do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. So he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions for all their sins. And so he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. There shall be no man in the tabernacle of meeting when he goes in to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out, that he may make atonement for himself, for his household, and for all the assembly of Israel. 
And he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. And shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. Then he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times, cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. Then Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of meeting, shall take off the linen garments which he put on when he went into the holy place, and shall leave them there. And he shall wash his body with water in a holy place, put on his garments, come out, and offer his burnt offering, and the burnt offering of the people, and make atonement for himself and for the people. The fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. And he who released the goat as the scapegoat shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. The bull of the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was carried in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp, and they shall be burned, and they shall burn in the fire their skins, their flesh, and their offal. Then he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. Amen. Do you all follow that? Make sense? Well, let's do a quick summary. There are three animals and three people, and they come together, and they go through this ceremony once a year on this great high and holy day in Jewish tradition called Yom Kippur. The Day of Atonement. The three people are the high priest, the suitable guy to lead the scapegoat, and the janitor to clean up the ashes. The three animals are the bull who will die for the sins of the high priest in his house. The goat who will die for the sins of Israel. And the scapegoat who will bear the sins of Israel away into the wilderness, removing them from the congregation of the Lord. There is something oddly and unexpectedly common about those three figures who are responsible for these three sacrificial animals. They all have to wash their clothes, wash their bodies and change their clothes when they're done. Did you notice that? Did you catch that in the, in the sea of details? The high priest spends all day killing animals, sprinkling blood, offering incense. And when the day is finally done and atonement has been made for him, his house, and all Israel, sin has been forgiven in blood and in death. Sin has been removed in the scapegoat being cast out. He still has to wash his body and change his clothes. Why? Because by the blood of bulls and goats, there is no forgiveness of sin. 
It was an act of faith in the one who is to come. Not faith in the one who was burning on the altar. The bull couldn't save. The goat couldn't save. The one who carried the carcasses out of the camp and burned them outside the camp, he had to wash and change his clothes to come back in. He was unclean. The one who led the scapegoat into the wilderness and released it in the wilderness, he had to wash his body and change his clothes. He was unclean. Only one person in the entire sacrificial system ever went outside the camp and came back clean. That's Jesus. Hebrews chapter 13. Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to read verses 7 through 21. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 through 21. I feel a little bit like I'm cheating here. The book of Hebrews is like a glorious hike up a 14,000 foot rocky mountain. When you get to chapter 13, you have this glorious vista. And we cheated. We, we, we took the car. We didn't do the hike. We didn't walk up chapters 1 through 12. We're just jumping to the peak to enjoy the glorious view. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 through 21. Here again, the word of the Lord. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive. For they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy, not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us, for we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things desiring to live honorably. But I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now, may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, Through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever 
and ever. Amen. And amen. Some years ago, one of my crazy friends in Oklahoma talked me into a hundred-mile off-road bike ride race, actually. Not quite sure how he pulled that off. But anyway, we signed up to spend a Saturday in March pedaling a hundred miles around the back roads of Oklahoma. Of course, in classic Providence, the night before I got sick and it rained. The red dirt roads turned to peanut butter. And we climbed onto the bike, shivering in the cold of the March rain, just after dawn on Saturday morning. The guys get out in front, the directors, the organizers, all of whom are wearing big warm puppy jackets and not sitting on a bike, are all excited and cheering us on, and we're thinking, this is a really bad idea. They blow the whistle and the bikes take off, and those first couple miles around the city when we're on pavement aren't too bad. Even a couple of miles around the city on the gravel isn't too bad. But before the 10th mile, we had found the soup. We had red clay mud halfway up our tires. Our pedals were scraping through the mud as we swung round. We came up one particularly prominent hill and surveyed the carnage below us. There was a giant orange puddle full of riders and their bikes. On the left, there was a steep rise and cyclists attempting to go around the puddle by riding up the hill and down again. On the right side, there was forest and cyclists trying to plow their way through the soggy forest and cut between the trees to go around the puddle. Just as we crest the hill, my friend shouts, are you following me? And I said, depends on where you're going. And this is the heart of a follower. The kind of heart that the book of Hebrews wants us to have this morning. That when pastors and elders say to you, are you following me? The sheep say back, that depends on where you're going. Are you leading me to Christ? Now, so you don't have to sit for 30 or 40 minutes waiting. We went up the hill and it was fine. The point of the text this morning in Hebrews 13 is that we should have hearts that want to follow leaders into faith in Jesus. And that we should have leaders who want to lead people into faith in Jesus. The truth of God for us The good news for us, the gospel for us, is that Jesus most certainly saves. You can depend on it. You can trust it. It is true. Jesus most certainly saves. So follow your leaders into faith in Him. Let's look at the text together. I want you to notice that this part of the text is actually organized with three successive commands. In verse 7, it says, remember your leaders, those who rule over you. In verse 17, it says, obey your leaders, those who rule over you. And in verse 24, which we're not going to get to specifically in this sermon, it says, greet your leaders, those who rule over you. 
These three commands using the same Greek words of remember your leaders, obey your leaders, and greet your leaders form the cohesive text that we're looking at. The first command to remember your leaders has to do with this retrospective spirit of looking back at the leaders we have had. It says in verse 7, Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. In the Hebrew culture, the word remember wasn't fundamentally an intellectual exercise. Often in the West, in America, we think of remembrance as something we do in our minds. But in the Hebrew culture, to remember someone is to act in a way that acknowledges someone else's reality. To remember your leaders, in this case, means to listen to God's word which they gave you. Secondly, to follow their faith in that word. To copy their faith, to mimic their faith. And then thirdly, to consider or contemplate the outcome of their way of life the consequences of how they lived, the significance of the way they lived. Now, to do this, we have to understand the leaders that this book is calling us to remember. It's actually calling us to remember the leaders who have gone before. The leaders who spoke the word of God. That is the prophets and the apostles. Remember the leaders of the church who yet still rule over the church. They rule over us by their writings. They rule over us by the preservation of their stories, their songs, their memories. We are to listen to the word of God which our leaders of old have given to us. We are to submit to the scriptures first and foremost. This is critically important for shepherding, is it not? That what we're looking for in pastors and elders are not primarily people who are enamored with their own wisdom. But who love the wisdom of dead leaders. Who love the wisdom of the leaders of the Old Testament and the New Testament. I'm actually going to move rather rapidly through this. Because there was a whole class this morning from Tom on it. He laid down this principle beautifully. That the New Testament's approach to the Old Testament is that there are leaders there who have left a legacy for us. The very word of God. That scripture should be first and foremost in how we grow and how we live. But secondly, there is a faith in that scripture that these leaders exhibit. When we think of Abraham, the father of the faithful, he took God's word as law. God said, leave Ur of the Chaldeans. Abraham left. God said, kill your son Isaac. Do you know what Abraham says in that whole story? Nothing. Do you know what Abraham says when God says, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? He gets into a big argument with God. No, you're not. What if there's 50 men? What if there's 40? What if there's... He negotiates God down to 10 people to save Sodom and Gomorrah. When God says, kill your son, your only son whom you love, Abraham says, nothing. 
He takes Isaac, he takes a knife, he takes a stick of wood, and he walks. He believes the Bible, and he'll bet his son's life on it. This is a shepherd. This is the kind of leader that we're looking for, that we see in the pages of Scripture. Someone who leads the church by saying, Amen, Lord, let's do it. Who believe the Bible. But then, thirdly, who consider the outcome of their conduct, their way of life. What is the fruit of how all the saints and leaders of old lived? What is the outcome of all their lives? What was the whole point of Noah's story? It wasn't how to survive floods. Build boats. That's not the moral of the story. The moral of the story is, you need Jesus. What about Abraham and Isaac? Isaac doesn't actually die, does he? Because you need a ram. You need Jesus. The whole point of Leviticus and Aaron offering the Day of Atonement is that these animals can't do the job. Aaron and all his army of priests can't do the job. You need Jesus. And lo and behold, to quote the old King James, verse 8 says what? Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You see, the reason we should remember leaders is they make for us this principle, this point. Jesus saves. He most certainly saves. He saved Abraham. He saved Israel. He saved David. We can look back at the leaders who are recorded for us in Scripture and we can see it's true. It's true. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's always been the one to show up. Abraham walks three days into the wilderness, climbs climbs Mount Moriah all by himself with Isaac in tow and a piece of wood and a knife. They stack the wood up. He ties up his son, throws him on the the, uh, altar. By the way, Abraham's over 100 years old. His son is probably approaching 20. Isaac can not only beat his dad up, he can outrun him. Isaac is in submission. Isaac probably had to climb on it. There's no way Abraham picked him up. Together they are in submission to the word of God. This is shepherding. They believe provision from God can be made. The one thing put in the mouth of Abraham is when his son says to him, Father, where's the sacrifice? Abraham gives us some of the most beautiful Hebrew ever spoken. It's poetry. God himself will provide himself the sacrifice. And you stop and you say, grammatically, does that mean that God will provide for himself the sacrifice? Or does that mean God will provide himself as the sacrifice? Abraham leaves that vague on purpose. God is able to provide the sacrifice. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is the truth Jesus saves. It was the truth in Genesis, it's the truth in Revelation, and it's the truth on every page in between. There's not a single song, story, prophecy, or poem in this book that isn't making this point. You need Jesus. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is what shepherds do. They believe the Bible. They believe in Jesus. And they serve to others this faith in Jesus. 
Now, if we submit ourselves to the shepherds of old, these fathers in the faith, the prophets and the apostles, and if we elect for ourselves this fall elders who will shepherd like this, who will believe the Bible, who will teach the Bible, share the Bible, live the Bible, preach the Bible, so that faith in Jesus is the fruit and the result, the Holy Spirit in Hebrews promises us two rewards. First, A heart established in grace. Second, a life of love. So first, the heart established in grace. Verse 9. If we have shepherds and honor those shepherds and remember those shepherds who lead us into faith in Jesus, the message of the Bible, then we are not carried about, the Holy Spirit says, by various and strange Doctrines. I love this phrase, especially in the context. Any reading of the Bible that doesn't come to the conclusion Jesus saves is a varied or strange doctrine. If you read your Bible and you didn't end up at Jesus, you invented a varied or strange doctrine. That's what the author is saying. There is one doctrine in the Bible. The doctrine of grace. It is a doctrine in which the heart is established by the goodness of God's grace. And not preoccupied with the foods that are found there. This is what we often do. We go to the scriptures and we find various and strange doctrines. We go to our lives, our own imaginations. One of my favorite Old Testament phrases, Nehemiah says, You are making this up out of your own heads. We are so prone to be innovators in religion. We like to invent various and strange doctrines. And the Holy Spirit says, no, there is one doctrine, the doctrine of grace. The doctrine of God's Son, Jesus Christ, crucified for sinners. He pulls one piece of the Old Testament out, a key piece, and says, let me illustrate it. Verse 10, we have an altar from which those who served in the tabernacle have no right to eat for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. In these two verses, he is not only summing up the day of atonement about which we read in Leviticus 16, he is summing up the entire Old Testament sacrificial system. He's summing it up, wrapping it up, tying it up and dropping it in the trash can. They can't eat at the altar. We have a heavenly altar they can't reach. The foods with which they were preoccupied with was not real food, was not true food. Here's the image he's trying to give us. There was a practice among the Levites and the priests, among Old Testament Israel, of loving their pomp and their circumstance and their ceremony. They loved the robes and they loved the incense and they loved the blood and the knives and the gore and they loved the barbecue because when you burn animals, that's kind of what you get. And, And there's this carrying outside of the camp and the setting apart is holy within the camp and there's this fantastic festival that goes on day after day and they miss the point that Jesus was the point. They got lost in the details. They went after a strange and varied doctrine. They missed the doctrine of grace. 
that was trying to be communicated to them. The fact that this was on replay showed that it failed. The fact that every new sin occasioned a new sacrifice. The fact that the turning over of the calendar occasioned a new sacrifice. The fact that the high priest had to sacrifice for his sin, as well as the sin of his people, continually showed that the goal of the sacrificial system was not to forgive sins through the blood of animals, but through the blood of Christ. Now, of course, we sit back in a very comfortable posture and look upon our predecessors and say, that makes sense. All those sheep long ago in the land of Israel, they didn't understand that the sheep they were offering pointed to Christ. And we go, yeah, we understand that now. And yet, are we not constantly idolaters with our own religion? Shall we step on our toes? Shall we humble our hearts? Psalm singing won't get you into heaven. Full stop. Sitting in these pews every Sunday, listening to me thunder away, won't get you into heaven. You have to believe it. You have to get to Jesus. If you can't get to faith in Jesus through what we sing and what we preach, you're not getting where you need to go. This is the heart of a shepherd. This is what the work of shepherding is, to get the people of God to see the real meaning of the ritual. We don't give up the ritual. We don't abandon the religion. We see its real significance. We see its real value. Ultimately, friends, why do we sing psalms? Because they're Jesus' songs. Because Jesus sang them. Jesus lived them. Jesus died in fulfillment of them. They're all about him. They're from him. They're for him. They're to him. And when you sing them, they're with him. It's this Jesus-centeredness that is the point. And so often we miss it when we practice our religion. We think it's about our performance. We think it's about our self-righteousness. And we miss what shepherds are trying to tell us. And we need shepherds to tell us. It's not just showing up. It's knowing why you showed up. Faith in Jesus. This is what establishes our hearts. That our life grows out of the grace of God in Christ. Not out of our performance. Not out of our obedience. But rather the other way around. Our obedience grows out of His grace. His grace is first. It establishes our hearts. Now that love and life of obedience that grows up out of His grace. The author to the book of Hebrews offers us three therefores. To him to hammer for us this life of love, this life of obedience. First, therefore, in verse 12, the life of love and of obedience that results from a heart of grace is one of sanctifying suffering. Not an exciting place to start, is it? Sanctifying suffering. In verse 12, we are told, therefore, Jesus, that he might sanctify his people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. This is the great reversal of the Day of Atonement. 
where all that was unclean was taken outside the camp and there disposed of. And those who went outside the camp became unclean and had to be cleansed in order to come back inside the camp. The Holy Spirit, here in verse 12, tells us Jesus is the exact opposite. When he goes outside the camp, the outside the camp becomes clean. He does not become unclean. He who knew no sin became sin for us. That our sins might be forgiven. That our sins might be removed. This image is this rich vision of Jesus making us clean outside the camp. And so he says in verse 13 a second time, Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. The desire of the Holy Spirit is us to grasp that cleansing, that sanctification, that a life growing up into obedience consists of a departure from self, And society. And into Christ. Let us go forth to him outside the camp. We had a fun time last night in family worship discussing all the different ways we could apply the word the camp to our own lives. What camp is Christ calling you out of? Have we too long trafficked in this self-righteous religiosity? And need to go outside that camp to be with Jesus. Have we too long been rooted in worldliness and earthly ambition, desire for success and wealth and fame? And we need to go outside that camp to live a life of suffering and of sanctification, to be alone with Jesus in the wilderness. Have we too long indulged the pet sins of our heart? Too long coveted the wickedness within us, not wanting to confess it aloud. Not wanting any to see or to know. Wanting to keep private and prized the perversity within us. And we have to go outside that camp. We have to repent of these sins and these longings. And suffer with Christ the reproach of righteousness. This is the life that grows up because of grace. When we grasp the grace of God in Christ, a holy hatred wakens within us for sin. Is it not startling? Is it not beautiful? That when we understand the love of God in Christ, hatred is born. Hatred for sin. Hatred for evil. A longing for a life with Christ wherever He is. Even outside myself. Even outside my sin. Even outside the camp that I have found comfortable. To go out into the wilderness with Jesus. But secondly, this life is one of worship. In verse 15, the the Holy Spirit tells us that we by Him continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. By this, the Holy Spirit is calling to mind the idea, as he says in verse 14, that there is no perpetual city here on earth in which to worship. Jerusalem, which once was that center of all Israelite worship, is not to be forever the center of Israelite worship. Rather, Jerusalem itself, as a city, has been eclipsed by Jesus. This is what he promises in Matthew 24, when he says all these great stones are coming down. And you better be built on the real cornerstone. 
himself, even Jesus. Jesus says that he is the continuing city. And so in him is born a heart of worship. A heart established in grace that grows up into a life of sanctified suffering and faithful praise. Specifically, confessing his name. Giving thanks to his name. Saying, yes, Jesus means he saves. Jesus' name is one of salvation. But then thirdly, a life of work. This one's important. Verse 16. Do not forget to do good and to share. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Within the Reformed tradition, we have a wonderful habit of pointing out that the sacrifices of the Old Testament all pointed to Jesus. And so when Jesus came, sacrifices went away. But it is interesting that not all sacrifices went away. There are two sacrifices here that remain for us as New Testament believers in Jesus. The sacrifice of praise and the sacrifices of doing good and sharing. In other words, the sacrifices of worship and of work. This becomes the new rhythm for the church life. You recall in the Old Testament, there was these seasonal festivals. There was a rhythm to the church life in the Old Testament. We had festival one and two and three, and we would all be in our places, Sabbath by Sabbath, worshiping in the local synagogue. But three times a year, we would go up into the New Jerusalem to the Zion of David and their worship in the tabernacle or temple. That is not the pattern anymore. Rather, the Holy Spirit teaches us here in Hebrews that as shepherds, we are to be advancing our flock into the rhythm that was first promised in the fourth commandment. Worship and work. Worship and work. It's now the new normal. It's now the rhythm of the life of faith. That having grasped the centrality of Jesus, I gather with his saints in glory every Sabbath to worship. And then I walk with him into the wilderness every Monday through Saturday. And I have Christ who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Are you with me? These are the rewards. That if we have shepherds who understand the preeminence of Jesus in the Bible, who believe that, practice that, live that, and if we follow those shepherds in their faith, believing in Jesus and His preeminence, the reward is a heart of grace growing up into a life of love. And so the book of Hebrews returns to the same theme. Because you know what? That's what Hebrews do. They repeat themselves. Because sheep don't listen so good. In verse 17, he says again, concerning leaders, obey those who rule over you and be submissive. We're Americans. We haven't liked obeying anyone since 1776. Actually, down in the harbor a year before that, we first established, we don't like obeying anyone. It's amazing. There are legitimate government at the time. They give us a tax, which the Bible says is completely legitimate. It's about a penny for like every hundred dollars. It's not the kind of taxes you guys are filing right now. And you know what we do? We take a whole ship full of tea and dump it into the harbor. 
There's a kind of rebellion at the very heart of the American experience. There's a kind of rebellion in the soul of the American society. And yet, the Holy Spirit says to the sheep of Jesus Christ, obey those who rule and be submissive. Obey means behavior. Actually conform your behavior. Your thinking, your feeling, your words, your actions. Be conformed to those who rule over you, to your leaders. By submissive, he means the internal. And have a heart that's willing to do it. You guys know all about this, right? You guys have seen, you have experienced the child who is told, sit down. The child sits down, but you can so see it in their eyes. They're standing up inside. This is what the Holy Spirit warns us not to do. Obey your leaders. Obey them willingly, cheerfully. Be submissive to them. But in context, what should your leaders be telling you to do? Go to Jesus. Go outside the camp. Get out of yourself, get out of your sin, and get into Christ. That's the obedience that is commanded of you. Follow your elders in entering into faith in Jesus Christ. For they watch over your souls to give an account. This is a terrifying thing. The elders are actually answering to God for your soul. So the next time we have independent-minded evangelicals who want to come in and tell us that the elders can't fence the table, the answer is, I'm sorry, God's going to hold me accountable for who I serve. This isn't a joke. This isn't heavy-handedness. This is... God holds us accountable. But he doesn't hold us accountable for every sin you commit. He holds us accountable for telling you about Jesus. For establishing your hearts in grace. So that your life might grow up in loving obedience to him. So that you might embrace sanctifying suffering. So you might devote yourself to worship and to work. In his glory and for his name. The Holy Spirit warns us, let your elders do this with joy and not grief. That's unprofitable. Don't make it painful for us to tell you about Jesus. Don't make it hard for us to tell you about Jesus. Invite our conversation into your life. Invite our oversight into your soul. That we have opportunity, privilege, freedom to say to you, here's the grace of God in Christ. Here's Jesus. Here's what you need. And dear elders, let us not dare offer our sheep anything but Jesus. He is what most certainly saves. This is what shepherds do. They watch the souls of saints in order to see those souls move closer and closer to Christ. There are two things I would ask of you. Two things you can do for your shepherds. They would make your shepherds shepherd you with joy. Verse 18 and 19, pray for us. Beloved, pray for your shepherds. 
Pray for your elders. One of the most arresting stories I came across early in my ministry was that of John Welsh. How many of you know who John Welsh is? You probably know his father-in-law, John Knox. John Knox had a daughter, married John Welsh, who was a pastor. His wife, the daughter of John Knox, would find him in the middle of the night, downstairs in the living room, in the dark, on the floor, weeping. And she would go down and shake him and say, come, come to bed, it's the middle of the night, knock it off. And he would look at her and he goes, I have souls and I know not where they stand tonight, how can I sleep? So desperate was he to have his sheep in the embrace of Christ. I submit to you that not only does that illustrate for you the deep heart of a shepherd who longs for his people to know Christ, it also shows a shepherd who hasn't grasped the full breadth of the gospel yet. There is both an encouragement to shepherds in that story to really love the sheep and pray for them. There's also a warning in that. Don't confuse the under-shepherd with the great shepherd. Pray for your shepherds. For we are tempted on both fronts. Tempted to be self-indulgent and lazy and to neglect you. We are also tempted to think we are your Christ. And to want to save you. And every time you ring us up and text us and reach out to us, our hearts break a little more. There's cracks all through our souls as we try to love you through some hard, hard things. Pray for us. Pray for us specifically that with a good conscience we would live honorably. Pray for your shepherds to be able to live in a Christ-centered, Christ-honoring way. That our lives would actually represent how grace gets in the soul And how grace grows up into love. That we would live like this and model this for you. Pray for us. That you would have shepherds who would be brought to you. Restored to you all the sooner. That they might live among you. And be an example to you and a guide to you. On how to be drawing nearer and nearer to Jesus with every day. The second thing I would ask of you from verses 20 and 21. Expect Jesus. You see, this is the burden of the whole text this morning. This is the burden of the whole sermon series on shepherding. Expect Jesus to show up when you elect elders. Expect Jesus to show up when those elders come to shepherd you. Expect Jesus to shepherd this church and to do it through the preaching of his word. And to do it through the counsel and encouragement of his elders. Expect them to speak and to pray and to shepherd in a way that Jesus is brought to you and revealed to you. May the God of peace who brought up the Lord Jesus from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, make you complete that's what he's doing that's what he's doing to us as a congregation that's what he's doing to you as a family and as individuals Jesus the resurrected Lord Jesus the great shepherd of the sheep 
has given you the shepherds you have, such as we are, to make you complete. That through us, and very often in spite of us, you would be saved. Saved to the uttermost, sanctified entirely, comforted, growing up into grace and into love. Friends, he is making you complete and working in you everything that is pleasing to you. Have you felt that? Have you seen that? I find this one of the most disarming and terrifying things in Scripture. Jesus is making me pleasing to his Father. You know why that's so hard for me? Because I know myself. Because I live with myself and I see myself in the mirror of Scripture every day. And the first thing that's going to happen to me this afternoon when I say amen and start saying goodbye to you guys is I'm going to be under a tsunami of guilt and negative feelings as almost every preacher I know is. As we recognize how far short we've come. And we just didn't do that text justice. And we just didn't do that Jesus justice. And I don't know an elder who doesn't feel the same way about their shepherding about their service and their leadership. So constantly beset by the realization I have fallen short of his glory again. And yet the promise he is making you well-pleasing. That's what he's doing. Do you believe him? Do you trust him? Friends, follow me. Follow me in trusting Jesus. And this fall, elect elders, whom you can follow in trusting Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we do give you thanks for our Jesus. For the abundant glory and grace that has been revealed to us in Him. That He is our scapegoat bearing our sin into the wilderness. He is our sacrificial lamb crucified for our sin. He is the cleansing water. He is the blood through which we are forgiven. He is the atonement. The resurrection and the life. In Him is all glory and grace and praise and Father, we pray today that you would have mercy on us, that we would believe it, that you would draw us to Jesus, unite us to Jesus, and increase our trust in Jesus. Father, we pray today that you would give us elders who live this truth, who preach and teach and share this truth, and that you would add to their number that there would be a great multitude of elders who walk before the flock and model for them and guide them and how to draw nearer and nearer to Christ. Our Father, give us this blessing for the praise of Jesus and in his name. Amen.